listening to a podcast from The National. With only 15 months left to finalise the details of the UK's withdrawal from the European Union, businesses in Britain and Europe are bracing themselves. After all the promises from the Leave camp and the warnings from the Remainers, can Britain be economically beneficial for the UK? This is the National Business Extra podcast and I'm Chris Nelson. Today I'm joined down the line from the UK capital by the National's London Bureau Chief, Damien McElroy, a pro-Brexiteer, and Noor Nanji, business reporter at the National's London office, who takes a very different view to weigh up the pros and cons of the biggest divorce in modern history. No, if I, I turn to you, um, being more in line with uh, remaining, um, from a devil's advocate sort of point of view, um, one of the, the uh, potential opportunities for leaving is that companies may have fewer regulations. Um, Brexit may well present an opportunity for businesses to operate without European Union directives. Um, and once it's left, it will no longer have to adhere to the rules imposed by the European Parliament. Um, and therefore, for instance, it could... It could, at the moment, the EU regulations stop the UK um, from lowering VAT below 15%. But once Britain leaves, the government could be free to reduce that and reduce taxes, which would surely encourage major growth and investment. Do you know, do you think that that's um, you know a reasonable argument? Oh, I think that um, regulations have been put in place for a reason, and slashing red tape sounds very attractive mm-hmm. in theory. Um, but as I say. Um, following on it from experiences such as the financial crisis of 2008-2009 and other major events, uh, I think that a lot of the regulations that are now in place are actually designed to protect consumers um, and also to protect businesses. So I think that while there has been this argument uh, made by certain people in the Brexiteer camp to slash um, red tape and perhaps change the UK economy into sort of a Singapore-style uh, economy on the outskirts of, of Europe, yeah. um, which sounds attractive in theory. Uh, as I say, I think that this um, has has some serious downsides. Um, firstly, it does lose some of those protections that were put in place and mm-hmm. could therefore you know, risk, risk um, returning to some sort of uh, financial crisis as we had in in 2008, um, and I think that that uh, is you know something definitely to be to be cautious of. Um, it also means that we have a sort of potential of a sort of race to the bottom kind of yeah. uh, effect, where other you know European countries will also feel that it's not fair. We're not playing by the same rules, mm. and um, and and everyone starts slashing, uh, which I think. It really doesn't end well. I think that that's a negative for financial stability, Mm -hmm. um, trying to attract and sort of undercut uh, other countries to to promote our own our own um, you know country as as a a venue for investment and trade. Mm. And Damien, being being more of a a a pro uh, lever, I guess you 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 would um, come down on on the argument that uh, current the current um, red tape involving the European. Union and bureaucracy surrounding it is in fact strangling opportunity for the UK economy. Is, is that kind of your take on it? Yes, um, there's no doubt that the EU regulatory system is very, very prescriptive. It doesn't allow for um, industries to set their own standards. It sets a standard for them. And uh, some of its more recent uh, approaches <clears throat> have been really quite 
um, damaging to new industry. So its regulations on data protection, for example, mm -hmm. will tie companies up in huge amounts of red tape mm -hmm. um, and could actually uh, prevent the, develop, the rapid development of big data. Um, and there's another aspect of what the EU does that um, basically it makes countries that it deals with mm -hmm. absorb its own standards, especially countries in, in the developing world. And um, for the UK to uh, take a stand outside of this system would actually be a rebalancing of global trade in and of itself. And it would allow for a different type of regulatory agenda, one that was much more about um, did goods uh, meet a overall standard rather than yeah. a specific standard. That's yeah. the damaging thing about EU regulations. They're very, very prescriptive. They do tie up um, world trade and they have diminished overall world growth. Mm. And and sticking with, with, with that kind of aspect, Damien, I mean, obviously, uh, one of the the big elephants in the in the room for for leaving is is the potential for no access to the single market or the customs union. You know, UK benefits a lot from tariff free trading with the EU, and and once we leave, if we lose access to the EEA, um, you know, we've got to pay increased taxes, customs costs, unless of course an agreement is reached. But that's with the twenty set all twenty seven other member states. That could present huge challenges for business. Um, you know, they may well have to pay extra costs in order to do business with organisations based in the EU, which is, of course, the UK's biggest overseas market. It is, and for that reason, it's virtually impossible to imagine. Mm. Um, there, there is a, a canard about the single market, and, and that is that, um, you know, it's this great free access, almost bubble on the face of the earth. Yeah. And, in fact, it's... It is a single market largely for goods. It doesn't hugely apply to services in, to the same extent. Uh -huh. um, and while labor can move around, um, you try being a, a, a law firm trying to set up in Germany. You have many, many hurdles to overcome to do it. So yeah. the, uh, the outside-in factor does exist still, uh -huh. even within the single market. Now, going outside the... Um, EU Customs Union, outside the EEA, outside the, um, the single market, um, does raise the prospect of, of more hurdles, even on goods, uh, even on uh, goods, the mm -hmm. cars that are exported, etc. Mm -hmm. But given the strategic importance of Britain to Europe, given the standing trade links and the ease at which you could set up a regime in which, you know, the standards are aligned at the moment. Yeah. So, um, and, and what anyone is talking about is scope for divergence over the years, which uh -huh. would become a pragmatic thing of, was it needed? Do British manufacturers anyway want to diverge because they still want to sell into Europe? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the level of integration is high. That mitigates for a good free trade agreement. Mm -hmm. And it is possible that um, you can have the opportunities of striking free trade deals with other parts of the world while having um, smooth, bar barrier-free mm -hmm. access to mm -hmm. European markets. And no, you you um, presumably see this as 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 do as do many in the UK as as the a very significant threat. Um, do you do you? 
think that coming out of the of the uh, single market and the customs union, it really does uh, spell um, a major danger sign for the economy? Uh, yeah, I do. And I think that there's um, been many studies to support the, the, that fact and the risk that coming out of the single market will pose to our economy. I mean, we're talking about, as you mentioned, Christian, the yeah. largest free trade area in the world. Mm-hmm. It's our biggest trading partner, 44% of our exports going to the EU. And that's a market of 500 million customers. Now, we have, as you say at the moment, you know, the benefit of being in the single market, we can we can trade with them barrier-free and there's regulatory alignment. Now, coming out of that is is going to pose a, a huge risk, as, as I say, many studies have shown. Now, just yesterday, we had uh, the leaked government papers, which, which showed what the Tory government, the Conservative government themselves think is going to be the hit to yeah. the economy uh, in every single likely Brexit scenario. Mm-hmm. Now, bear in mind that these were secretive papers. They weren't supposed to be seen at all by the British public, <laughs> yeah. which in itself is slightly troubling because the co- government has consistently said that there were no such assessments being undertaken. Yes, absolutely. So and it was remaining the, transparent. They just, they, just didn't, they just didn't want the public to see them. Yeah. And what they revealed was that, you know, under each of the three most likely scenarios after Brexit, uh, the UK economy is going to be worse off than it would have been if we had remained. Um, if we had, I- even if we retain single market access after Brexit, and that can be done through membership of the European Economic Area, which is a similar model to how Norway uh, operates. But hasn't hasn't the the EU's be... EU's already said that there's no? Oh, sorry, the yeah, the EU's already said that there's no way that we're going to get a special deal though. So so can you can you honestly justify that as a potential argument? Well, I think that it's more that the UK government has been very clear that they don't want to be part of the single market and the customs union anymore because they are linking immigration policy and how we view the European Court of Justice to also how we want to trade with the bloc. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we under- the UK understands that to get the freedom that they want in terms of breaking free from the EU... Uh, we're going to have to take the hit and exit the single market. So, no, we're we're not going to remain in. But had we remained in um, through some sort of EEA agreement, growth would have been still even then 2% lower um, over the next 15 years. Now, taking that argument out, as you say, because it doesn't look like that's what's going to happen, if there was a comprehensive free trade agreement with the European Union, growth would still be 5% lower than it would have otherwise been in the Mm -hmm. next 15 years. Mm -hmm. And in the worst case, no deal Brexit, which is what the hardline Europe skeptics like Jacob Rees-Mogg are arguing for, um, in which the UK will fall back on World Trade Organization rules, economic growth would be up to 8% lower in the next 15 years than than if we'd remained in the EU. So I think all of this shows the huge importance of being in the single market, the value we get out of trading with our nearest neighbours, um, and the damage that's going to be done once once we once we exit from that. Yeah, uh, there there is there is of course an alternative argument, um, perhaps um, based on on what we've seen happening to the strength of the pound. I mean, since the vote, the, the pound has, has has got significantly weaker, which of course is a major boon to exporters. Um, you know, a strong pound is a problem for them. Uh, a weaker pound, foreign investors, less currency they needed to to buy the same quantity of British goods for them before. So, 
isn't there isn't there the potential to balance that downside that that is forecast with uh, a major increase in in exports and and by road a major increase in industrial output too? Uh, is that is there no way that that's that's potentially going to balance any downside? I think that's been the case up to now in the sense that exporters and manufacturers have been in something of a sweet spot since the Brexit vote because they've had the fall in sterling, which, as you say, boosts demand for British products overseas. So that's been supportive. But at the same time, they're continuously still able to trade like they used to because obviously we haven't actually left the EU yet. Once that happens, and uh, the deputy governor of the Bank of England has also said this, Brent Ben Broad, Broadbent, this mm-hmm. will now change because obviously then the new uh, agreements will come into place, um, potentially uh, different tariff agreements and um, and all the rest of it that goes with that. So, so in a sense, this this sweet uh, spot that they are in currently is is going to come to an end, and and, and we've seen that very much in the warnings that we've had from exporters. It's not like they're, you know, enjoying this moment without sort of looking into the future. I mean, just today, we had um, new data out um, on on car manufacturing in the UK, which said mm. that car manufacturing actually fell last year for the first time since 2009. Um, and that data came from the Society of Motor Manufacturers yeah. and Traders. And they said that this was partly to do with lower demand from UK consumers, but also to do with a fall in exports already to the EU, which is something that they predict will increase uh, very much in in the future. And they so they 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 in their report today they did warn that um, that they're very worried about future exports being under threat if there's no rapid progress made on, on the trading mm-hmm. conditions that are mm-hmm. going to apply once the UK leaves the EU. So I think that exporters, manufacturers, automakers are all very worried, even if at the moment they're sort of enjoying enjoying this moment in the sun. Mm-hmm. And, and Damien, um, uh, obviously uh, um, uh, away from, from manufacturing, um, uh, it's potential that the uncertainty that's generated, particularly at the moment and ongoing um, with, with businesses, um, that that may well, well curtail um, major investment in the UK. I mean, there's already numerous reports of, of, of such things happening with, you know, particularly the financial centre in London, perhaps the hardest hit. Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan are going, um, and as are others. Um, do, you not, do you not think that this, this um, change may well put the... the the power of, of what the, the London Financial Centre has been globally under serious threat? Um, I think, just to step back a little bit, there is um, a great sort of war rhetoric around this mm. in which, um, you know, Britain has not yet left the EU. It does enjoy the same conditions. Um, the project fear argument has not been borne out. Um, and, but but um, there are... There know, are... Economic models yeah, there are. I mean, there are though definite plans afoot to move to move elements of the financial services industry out, uh, you know, uh, into mainland Europe from some of the big players, aren't they? They are moving people. Um, they're moving jobs, but they're moving a limited number of jobs, and it's not yet clear that that would mean overall reductions in the UK headcount. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, yes, obviously, a, a bank or a, an investment fund does want a presence in the Eurozone. Um, but in some ways, um, this is a reversion to the practice 10, 15, 20 years ago where 
you know, a, a Goldman Sachs had a big bank in Paris and, and yeah. had a big bank in London, and, and they're now going back to that practice. So, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is a dynamic situation. Um, and I think the, you know, the rhetoric on one side, the, the kind of remainder thing that the people who, who want to make a clean break are, are kind of Mad Hatters or Alice in Wonderland, or <laughs> I think someone else has termed the, the, the used the term, you know, white queens, imagine yeah, yeah. Um, a fantasy reality that um, um, can never come about, is, is not actually um, going to be borne out by real events, by the real pressures to uh, maintain, um, you know, economic growth in Europe, to maintain close links to the UK. Yeah. Um, and the UK, by being able to show that it is a dynamic economy, that it can... Um, provide a platform for the financial markets. Um, in many parts of the financial markets, the UK is the world's biggest financial center. So, yeah. you know, like Hong Kong exists um, next to China and not part of the Chinese market, then there is no reason that um, the UK can't exist next to Europe, but yeah. not absolutely and wholly part of it in the way that it has been. Yeah. Uh, financial markets are different beasts. They are um, composed of a lot of history, a lot of reasons for operating in one particular centre. And um, time and again, we've seen that actually um, financiers like to have independent regulation systems. Mm -hmm. And those systems that bear down on them, like the Eurozone ones tend to do, they're a bit allergic to, Mm -hmm. even if they need a presence within them. Mm. No, presumably you would uh, you would point out that that uh, if Brexit means uh, the lack of the ability for financial centres, banks, and so forth to to, to continue passporting, which allows them the access to that uh, huge market, uh, would would have a major detrimental effect, and could well undermine the, the power of of the City of London as a as a financial centre. Yes, absolutely, and I think that um, almost from the moment that Brexit, the Brexit vote happened, rival EU hubs were already spotting an opportunity to steal business from London. Mm-hmm. Um, you also had, of course, um, President Macron come in as a very business-friendly um, president in France, and he's he's really stepping up the efforts to lure business uh, and bankers to Paris. But at the same time, you have the fact that Frankfurt is is a is a very um, well-established financial centre, and there are already big moves in place for global investment banks to move part of their operations and also part of their staff to places like Frankfurt, Dublin, mm-hmm. Paris. Mm-hmm. Now, the numbers are, you know, quite sizable, really. I mean, Goldman Sachs has said that it plans to move. Uh, to more than double its staff in Frankfurt. Mm. Um, Morgan Stanley has said it, it plans to add around 200 roles uh, there as well. And um, and a, a, a whole host of other banks, UK and also, um, uh, you know, the US, the big mm-hmm. US Wall Street mm-hmm. banks have, have said similar things. Now, um, so there is this risk, and, and that's really, as you say, uh, rightly, there is this fear that, there hasn't yet been any clarity on what the deal for banks and financial services mm-hmm. after Brexit is going to look like. So at that at this stage, it's not clear 
what's going to happen, whether we lose passporting rights, which is probably quite likely, um, and, and what sort of access we'll maintain mm-hmm. with, um, with the EU. And, and in light of that, many um, large firms have said that they can't wait for the government to finally yeah. you know, make a decision on this, and they're just going to start implementing these, these contingency plans, as it were, um, from now, because they don't want to reach a point that they haven't planned anything, and then we crash out of the EU without a deal, and it's too late for them to mm. to put in place anything. So you've had um, major CEOs and and and, and um, executives saying that they've already started, you know, past the point of no return, and the movements to to move, as I say, staff and operations are are well underway and not going to be reversed. Yeah, and obviously this does mean, you know, it's described as a sort of brexit, but it does really mean that for London's place as a financial centre will be diminished as a result. Yeah. You've already seen a huge drop in hiring. There's been various surveys to show that financial jobs are on the decline. Um, and the other aspect, of course, is the loss of talent. Now, if the new immigration rules make it a lot harder for uh, European staff to, um, you know, European workers to come, you know, fill out the, the places in, in banks in the UK, well, there's going to be a huge drop in... in um, in talents as well, so that's mm. a, that's another big concern for people who are trying to operate in London. Um, Damien, as as Noah said there, that the you know the big banks and financial centres, uh, service providers and such, um, are moving to a certain extent are moving um, some facilities uh, to mainland Europe as a contingency plan. In your opinion, is that all it is? It's it's not really reducing um, the clout of, of of the city as such as. Um, just um, shoring up um, a potential uh, future development, uh, and and they would do so. Whatever happens, they will do so. W- will not be at the detriment um, overall of of uh, the city of London's power. I'm sure there will be certain sectors of banking in which, you know, there'll be less activity done in Britain than there is uh, done in parts of Europe, in mm-hmm. Frankfurt or in Paris or in Dublin. Um, I think if you look at the overall, um, the view very much seems to be that the very deep pool of resources that exist to the City of London Mm. cannot be easily transferred across to Europe. That's partly because of suspicions about regulation. And, um, you know, it's not that long ago since um, the EU was very much pushing the transaction tax. Um, There are great suspicions about Brussels, about the people who drive Brussels policies, particularly the French. Um, and I, I, I think those will remain. You know, London has mm. a history of attracting people who want to work in financial services from around the world. Um, I think the overall ecosystem in London is robust, mm. will withstand a lot of this. And indeed, there are big opportunities where it seems, you know, London is way ahead of the rest in yeah. developing... Uh, business such as fintech, yeah. um, you know, there's virtually no real, Europe, you know, mainland European presence on mm-hmm. on on those sort of emerging areas of the the business. So, mm-hmm. um, I think there will there probably will be, almost certainly will be areas where um, you know, business will be transferred across the channel. Yeah. But I don't think this vast financial centre, the City of London. Is is going to sort of be blown away by this? Yeah, I think yeah. it it will have to adjust. It will have to be ruthless. It'll and 
there are new areas of business where, quite frankly, the EU is inhibiting growth. And, um, you know, the city could look to the government to provide a more friendly environment post-Brexit. I mean, I suppose another aspect of that, Damien, also is with us leaving the EU, I mean, the UK is already facing a skills shortage across the board. I mean, from, from you know, highly skilled um, uh, people in the medical professions to, to um, you know, crop pickers. Um, if, if freedom of movement currently ensures that, that Britain can secure skilled European nationals or indeed um, unskilled European nationals, um, surely once the, the UK leaves, um, companies are going to face a serious issue of hiring qualified employees um, or, 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 the, or even attracting any employees at all to work in, in farms and such, um, assuming, you know, they've got to be required to obtain a visa or work permits or anything like that. I mean, surely that's going to have... Um, outside of, of, of the financial centres, that's that's going to have a major impact on the economy and therefore, presumably, on if, for instance, um, farms can't find people to pick the crops, the crops rot in the ground, we've got to import them and with a weaker pound, that's going to cost a lot more, so consumers are going to get hit hard. Um, that, that's surely a serious economic concern, the, the, the skill shortage getting worse. Yes, but the, the referendum, you know, was a vast political exercise, and the political exercise um, largely revolved around the issue of how much migration came to this country that was unchecked, unmonitored, and um, uh, frankly, you know, dominated by not very savoury gangs and people who were facilitating this movement. And um, it is possible to develop, like Australia has, like the Gulf has, a um, a regime by which people can come and give their labour and then go home whenever the need for them is not there. Mm-hmm. The UK has not had that, and there is a very political demand that um, it does get a system such as the one you know you're familiar with yeah. um, in place, and um, you know that stems from politics and it could be economically disrupted. But I, I don't see that there's an alternative to it, given the, the momentous political decision that's been taken. And there is no doubt that, you know, Europeans, particularly those from the fringe part of Europe, continue to find um, the working conditions in Britain um, more attractive because they're relatively well-paid, um, there is relative fluidity within the labour market, and if you could design a, a migration system in which people could come on a permit basis mm-hmm. to to work, you would find that system very well subscribed. Mm-hmm. And you could open it up to other parts of the world that are, frankly, at the moment, kept out by the sort of EU-wide barriers. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, as we mentioned there, you know, we, we have in the UK um, a lot of skilled staff from from overseas, particularly in the NHS. Um, no, um, one of the good things, of course, uh, on the plus side about uh, leaving might be uh, well documented, although very questionable, the £350 million uh, a week um, contribution to the EU budget that would cease once the UK leaves. I mean, surely something like that would be, um, you know, a major a major boost to, to, to things like the NHS and, and um, you know, schools and things like this. That, that must be a positive, surely. Well, in theory, that would be right. But I think that any of the slogans that were used during the Leave 
champagne should be taken with something of a pinch of salt because a lot of them were exaggerated. A lot of them weren't, um, you know, have been proven to be actually incorrect. Um, I think that there is an argument for some of the contribution that we make towards the uh, EU. Of course, now we, you know, from after we leave or whatever is eventually agreed, we won't continue to contribute into the into the budget as we have been doing. But then you take a look at the fact that being the benefits of being in the single market was worth something in, the, in, in around ninety one billion pounds to the economy. Mm-hmm. the British economy every single year versus six billion that we pay to be a member. So the costs of being of, of being a member are sort of negligible compared to the benefit that we get from it. Mm-hmm. So those arguments, I still think, uh, don't really stack up when you actually do the maths on it. Mm-hmm. Damien, uh, one, one would assume that uh, you have a different set of, uh, of um, figures to do the maths with, I'd imagine. Well, there is more resources going into the NHS. They're not being direct redirected from the EU at the moment, but mm-hmm. there is no doubt that the e, the NHS is a huge priority for the voters again. So mm-hmm. you come down to this need for politicians to provide, to respond to the demands of, of, of the voters. And uh, people, frankly, do want more money to go to the NHS and less money to be directed into European Union coffers. Mm-hmm. And... There will, you know, there is no doubt that there will be continued payments to you, that there will be a give and take, but that some of that money will be freed up. The question, I think the broader question, is how does um, Britain use those resources in terms of areas where it is paying into the EU? Like, mm-hmm. How does it design a new agricultural subsidy system? It can't stop all... Um, subsidies to the agricultural sector, but it can develop a more fitting subsidy system for its producers Mm -hmm. than um, the one that exists. It can use some of that money to um, shape environmental policies. It can ensure that the the kind of heritage and the look of the countryside is better supported within a a sort of British-focused policy of, of supporting agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, than uh, the, the the more generalised EU system that has to uh, cater for olive farmers or has to cater for pig producers or has to cater for milk systems mm-hmm. and has to deal with forestry. Um, so there's there's a whole range of areas in which policymakers now get the chance to uh, design more fitting policies for the particular needs that arise within. Um, British conditions. Mm. So, you know, that over time, that will evolve. And um, lots of sectors from, as I say, fisheries to high um, investment in research and high-end, supporting high-end universities, developing new, new, um, uh, you know, new cutting-edge technology, mm-hmm. all that will, will come back to London and mm-hmm. um, you would hope that policymakers will be able to better spend that money. That's, yeah. that's the crux of it. Um, but there is no doubt that one of the big things is people just want better health care and a more efficient system. Yeah. And they think that money could, would be better spent than just 
sending a cheque to Brussels yeah. every month. Yeah. So, so we're at the stage now, obviously, beginning of nineteen eight, uh, beginning of nineteen eighteen, twenty eighteen, in fact. Um, it's a big year coming up. Um, obviously, um, you know, businesses are still concerned, despite the fact that we had the three ministers last week trying to reassure everybody that everything would be fine. Um, we've got Mrs. May, I believe she's in China today. Um, you know, she might, presumably she's there uh, knocking on doors to, to see if there's um, deals that can, can be done, assuming, of course, that, uh, that Brexit does go ahead. Um, and there are, of course, increasing calls for a second referendum. But um, let's assume for the minute that that doesn't come about, um, particularly given the fact that a couple of recent um, surveys have shown that for those who voted in the first, um, about 55% would now in fact vote to stay. But let's assume that we are leaving as as, uh, as originally voted for. Um, and we've got the America, you know, American president talking, uh, talking the America first uh, line, talking that up big today in his speech. Um, do you think... Once we do leave, this this idea, I'll, I'll start with you now, this idea of um, being able to forge major deals with, with other uh, major companies is, is realistic in the shorter term, um, or, or indeed realistic at all, in the sense that it, it will balance um, any trade, uh, trade deficits that we, we may, might uh, run into with, let's say we are out of um, the ability to trade tariff-free with, with the EU. I think that there will be a situation where, of course, we do eventually strike free and uh, start signing trade deals left, right and centre, which was always uh, sort of the, the bull case for people like Liam Fox, the mm. International Trade Secretary, and, um, and David Davis, the Brexit Secretary. Um, but I think that the idea that was given to the public that this would be a straightforward, not just with the EU, but as you say, with all these other countries that we mm-hmm. also want to want to sign deals with. Um, there was this idea that it was going to be very straightforward, everyone would be knocking on our doors. And yes, of course, we're the world's sixth biggest economy, people will want to trade with us, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that these deals are done overnight. Now, we have the example of the uh, Canada and EU deal, which took something like seven years mm-hmm. to to do to, to strike. So that's just one example of of how long these things can take and there's plenty more more like that. So I think the idea that yeah yes, there will be, I'm sure and we're all hopeful that we will eventually see you know the return on, on Brexit and we will eventually be able to strike our own deals. Firstly it's been made very clear by the EU that we're not able to do that. Uh, while we're still a member of the EU, mm. which we obviously still are, and and even after March 2019, even then, there's a discussion about whether in this two-year transition period that's subsequently going to take place, whether the UK will be allowed to use that time to start striking deals with the US and China and everywhere else. Uh, that's still a discussion point from what I understand. Mm-hmm. So it could be that we don't even start making trade deals with the rest of the world till 2021. And that leaves us in a bit of a limbo when we're sort of in and out of the EU, not really anywhere, and not able to even begin these discussions. Mm-hmm. And as much as, as I say, Liam Fox and David Davis and uh, the team of Brexiteers are flying around the world trying to make us feel that they're having all these discussions at the stage, at this point, that's all they are. They're mm. very, very initial starting point, talking point 
uh, issues, but they're not actually going into anything like formal trade agreements until as when as well as whenever the, the mm. EU gives us the green light to do that. And at this stage, as I say, it's not even clear whether that will be 2019 or after the actual transition deal is finished, which would be 2021. Mm-hmm. Damien, uh, presumably... Um I would imagine you you see these efforts to 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 connect with the wider world as as sort of setting in place the foundations for future big future deals uh, with with um, economies outside of uh, of um, the EU. Um, you know, there've been visit, trade visits to the UAE, for instance, to the wider GCC um, and to China. Um, where where do you think the most potential um, for developing um, major new um, trade trade deals with the outside of the EU potentially lie? I think there are great opportunities. I think the idea that countries are um, not interested in signing free trade deals with the world's sixth largest economy, with the um, second largest exporter of services, mm-hmm. is uh, for the birds, really. The um, There will be interest in having greater access to the uh, UK economy. The UK will continue to be well placed next to the European economy and it has um, a, a domestic market of its own to um, to get to for people to want to sell more easily into. Mm-hmm. The um, Americans have certainly said that they would be willing to um, have a free trade agreement with Britain. Uh, the British government in relation to the EU, says it wants um, an agreement that's modelled on the recent EU-Canada deal, mm-hmm. uh, plus, plus, plus. And one of the big pluses is obviously financial um, industry and services. Yeah. And, um, you know, the EU needs the, the supply of these services and um, could be more accommodating than its public position um, would suggest. Yeah, yeah. Aside um, from that, you know, there's a long historical British mercantile tradition. It has many links with the Australian, yeah. New Zealand market. It has many links with the Gulf. It has indeed talked with um, Gulf leaders about trying to do uh, a free trade deal there. It is very interested in supplemental deals um, with major markets. And But there is an, another important agenda here, which mm. is Uh, Britain has essentially been inactive at the WTO for many decades. Mm -hmm. And in the new, in world trading terms, what is becoming very important is market access. It's it's not just the the big agreements. It's making sure that barriers within the general agreements and tariff and trades, etc., aren't being sneakily put up. It's fighting the case through the WTO it's having your own ability to respond to your own manufacturers and to try and ease the barriers to trade that um, you know are very common in India, are very common in China. And a more proactive, a stronger, a more confident um, British role in actually fleshing out that liberalisation agenda yeah, yeah. would be an overall boon for, for the rest of the world. Yeah. Um- so just looking ahead again, so uh, if I ask you both briefly, do you think the end of this year will see um, Britain and the whole Brexit process 
in a much more healthy and um, uh, clear-minded position? Or do you think, in fact, it's just going to muddle its way through to um, ever-increasing potential disaster? I'll start with you, Damien. Well, I think as we saw at the end of last year, when the crunch talks came, things moved very quickly. So you have enormous periods where there is effectively shadow boxing and people are laying down positions, people are talking slightly past each other, um, and then comes the moment when they actually start trading the documents that lay down what will happen, how they want to agree, how easily structures can be built mm -hmm. around the various existing arrangements or uh, new inventive ways to set um, a new relationship. And what we're talking about at the end of this year is looking forward to Britain leaving the EU mm -hmm. in March mm -hmm. next year, but um, having a standstill agreement Mm -hmm. on um, trading conditions. The transition, that yeah. Maybe that transition period is very important because it will actually set out some of the um, the interoperability between the two regimes. Mm -hmm. It will also give space for this um, new EU-Britain um, agreement to be, to be formulated and to go through uh, ratification, and um, whether or not it's it's a hundred percent standstill in terms of trading conditions, or some more graduated approach, mm -hmm. is still to be um, uh, is still to be tried out. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I think the thing is, I think both sides are actually committed to a level of smoothness mm. that um, is not apparent from the kind of big guns firing whenever people lay out their initial uh, positions. Mm -hmm. And, and Noah, what would your, uh, what would your uh, forecast be for the what the state will be in at the end of this year? Well, I think that the thing to remember here is that while we did have this breakthrough in December, as, as it was described, yeah. uh, in terms of the EU greenlighting the discussions now moving on to uh, future trading arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, it was only an agreement that sufficient progress had been made. It wasn't, an it wasn't an actual agreement yet on the divorce. That still actually has to happen. It's just they were just green lighting, moving on to now starting to talk about trade in tandem with everything else. So we still need to have this agreement on the split, which hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And we still, at the same time, need to start outlining the future trading relationship. Now, we're already almost in February, um, and from March we'll be starting uh, restarting uh, the talks in Brussels. And as I say, this time we will be discussing trade. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got a lot of other things going on now. They just, they want us to have some sort of agreement on on the divorce and the um, and the future trading agreement by um, by October. Yeah. But in the meantime, you have. The Tory, the Conservative Party, is completely split down the middle. Uh, they're in fighting. Um, the last few days have just shown that none of the sort of uh, issues there have healed at all. Uh, they can't agree on their own position. So it's very difficult for them to really know what they're even asking the EU for. And you had this last week when uh, Angela Merkel was sort of mocking Theresa May and saying, come on, what's your position? What's your position? And she just couldn't say because... She literally doesn't know whether to go more towards the brighter tears in her party or more towards the sort of soft 
uh, Remainer site because mm-hmm. she's she has to tread this this balancing line. So it's very difficult for the British government to put forward a united position because they the party's not united. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have, as you said, Christian, mounting calls for a second referendum coming from the most unlikely of sources, including Nigel Farage, but yes. obviously also the people who are who are pro-Remain also have been calling for, for a second referendum. Now, as you say, it's probably quite unlikely that does happen, but you have that sort of hanging over our heads. Mm. Um, you have the risk of a leadership contest in the, in the Conservative mm-hmm. Party, which, which would make absolute farce of the discussions in, in the EU because they don't even know who they might be sitting opposite in a couple of months. So, um, and, and along with all of this, you've got the EU has made it quite clear that Brexit's not really a top priority for them and they have their own issues, um, including strengthening consolidation in the block um, and, um, you know, the new sort of axis of power yeah. between Merkel and Macron. Yeah. So it's not a priority for them. We don't really have a clear position. There's this goal of having uh, an agreement by October, but at the moment, you know, talks haven't even started so far this year. So, mm-hmm. so who knows whether we'll get there? And as you say, I think honestly, it's more of a sort of muddle through and um, and hope that there is some clarity. But um, but it's very much at the moment anyone's guess. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's um, that's the way of it, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, pros and cons thereof. Um, Thanks very much. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it with this. Um, I was reading a Blackstone, uh, Blackstone report recently, and they said, in conclusion, weighing up the pros and cons of Brexit, the Blackstone team believed that the benefits of staying in the EU far outweigh those of leaving. Whilst it may be attractive to legislate autonomously from the EU, being able to trade within the EU free of tariffs is a huge thing to sacrifice, especially with the EU being the largest trading bloc in the world. In one sentence or so... Um, Give me a reaction to that, and I'll start with Damien. I think there will continue to be access to the EU, um, and most particularly, actually, on goods. Um, there are modern technological solutions to uh, barriers to trade, like or just barriers to entry, um, and so there can be uh, an opportunity to continue that business while looking to expand um, trade with faster-growing markets around the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh... Well, I think it's a moot point because uh, we're not staying in the EU. I think everyone's made this very clear, even if 48% of the population or potentially even more now mm. uh, would actually like to do so. So the real question now is about minimising the economic impact of our leaving. And that means staying as close as we possibly can to the single market getting in place this transitional deal that businesses have been crying out for as long as uh, as long as anyone can remember. And, and, and just remembering that, you know, that there are these scenarios that were laid out by the Tory government themselves yesterday showing what could happen if we end up with a no deal and using that as a sort of reminder of how important it is that, that, that a good and, and uh, a swift deal is struck. Thanks very much for that beefy Brexit exchange to Damien McElroy, the National's London Bureau Chief, and Noor Nanji, business reporter at the National's London office. My name's Chris Nelson, and that was the National Business Extra podcast. Find us at www.thenational.ae.